This is the KMO Show, and I am KMO. And we have reached episode number 10. It is prepared for release onto the World Wide Web on Wednesday, May 3rd, 2023. My guest in this episode of the podcast is Michael Odysseus Varhola. And he wasn't born with the middle name Odysseus. He officially changed it, I think, in 2004. And uh, like the mythological Odysseus, he has traveled widely. (laughs) And he's written about his travels and a great many other things. Um, I know Michael because he used to be a regular participant on our Geb webcomic conference calls, uh, pitching story ideas and, you know, joke ideas, you know, refining concepts, things like that. And he was also in charge of creating, you know, a social media outreach campaign for the comic and for other projects that were were related to the comic, like uh, a role-playing game or a module and a role-playing game, which, as I understand it, is available on the uh, drive-through RPG website. But... As I regularly do, even, you know, if I know somebody, I know about them, I feel, you know, competent to introduce them. I still went ahead and looked for a bio of Michael online, and surprise, surprise, he has a Wikipedia page. Now, I started this, not this podcast, I started the Sea Realm podcast in 2006, and at the time, all of my podcasting peers had Wikipedia pages. Most of them don't anymore. Those pages have been taken down. But there was a time when you could pretty much write your own Wikipedia page. And many of my friends and acquaintances, you know, I would look at their Wikipedia pages and I would read them and I would say, oh yeah, they posted this themselves. I never did. And it wasn't from virtue. It was from vanity that I never did it. I wanted to be able to say I didn't create my own Wikipedia page. I wanted somebody else to do it. And nobody ever did. So I still don't have a Wikipedia page, at least I assume I don't, and I'm not going to take time out now to search, Uh, but Michael does. And I didn't learn a whole lot, you know, reading Michael's bio here on Wikipedia, except the extensive list of books that he has authored, not including a a novel he's written and multiple role-playing game modules. He's the author of multiple nonfiction books, and they include Everyday Life During the Civil War, Fire and Ice, The Korean War, 1950-1953. D-Day, The Invasion of Normandy, June 6, 1944. Shipwrecks and Lost Treasure of the Great Lakes. Ghost Hunting Virginia. Ghost Hunting Maryland. Life in Civil War America. Texas Confidential, Sex, Scandal, Murder and Mayhem in the Lone Star State. And, as I mentioned, uh, multiple games, tabletop games, role-playing games, gaming modules... Game Master resources like City Builder, A Guide to Designing Communities. And that's not to say anything about his military service, which he will talk about. And, you know, Michael, I think he's a couple years older than me. So he's right there at the cusp uh, between the boomer generation and the start of Gen X. And I'm not sure how he identifies. I think of him as a Gen Xer. But that's probably because I like him. And if I like somebody, I look for any excuse to get them out of the boomer category. Oh, the poor boomers. They had everything handed to them, and now all the subsequent generations are bitter. Anyway, we are going to talk about the war in Ukraine. Unlike seemingly everybody online, I don't have any strong opinions about the war in Ukraine. Yes, it does seem as though the United States, even though, you know, I, I think 
the um, the presidential spokesperson, whoever it is these days, uh, declined to embrace the term proxy war, it's pretty clear that the United States is engaged in a proxy war with, I was going to say the Soviet Union, with Russia in Ukraine. And it's kind of like saying the United States is an empire. You know, some people, they, they fight for that designation. They, they look for any excuse to label the United States an empire because empires are bad, right? And I'm like, are they? Are they bad? I mean... Seems like there's a lot less, uh, you know, conflict between states that are members of a single empire. If you were going to live in a historical uh, period of Great Britain, would you rather live during the Roman occupation of most of the country? Or would you rather live in the post-Roman era, you know, just after the Romans left, say a generation or two after they left? And there's all this architecture, all this infrastructure, all these artifacts that indicate that you live in a place where not so long ago there was more going on than there is now. There was a level of cultural sophistication and complexity where you live now that no longer exists. Was it better? I don't know. But if, you know, you were going to offer me the choice, I would choose to live in Roman Britain rather than just post-Roman Britain. But anyway, the uh, the red and the blue tribe have carved out their, their different positions on the war in Ukraine, and the blue tribe seems to be really for it, the red tribe seems to be against it, and I don't identify with either group, and I don't have a, a position that I adhere to on this topic that is assigned to me by my tribe, because my tribe is small and inconsequential. But Michael definitely has a strongly held opinion on the topic of the United States' participation in the war in Ukraine, so much so that without being, you know, sponsored by any any arm, any any agency, any department of the United States government, he went there on his own dime to do what he could to help the people of Ukraine. And that's what we're going to talk about. So here's my conversation with Michael O. Varhola. You're listening to the KMO Show. Let's go. I'm talking with Michael O. Varhola, who I think of as a writer and a games publisher and a professional raconteur. Uh, but Michael, you're a man with many, many hats in the closet, some of which you wear infrequently and others you wear more often. Uh, what are some of the hats I didn't mention? Well, far too many hats. And probably in my life, if I'd been a little more focused on one or two things instead of so many, uh, I might have done better with them. Um, but one of my hats is the one that's alluded to. Uh, in my display name here. That's the Gnosis Project. That's a uh, 501c3 charitable organization I started a few years back. Um, and the reason I started it is because I traveled overseas a lot. I visited a lot of small museums that wanted to have outreach to English-speaking audiences, but weren't really able to do that effectively. So uh, I would visit a museum in Ethiopia or Greece, and there'd be a little placard that... Uh, was typed out uh, in the local language. Um, and then there was something handwritten with about a quarter as many words in English that was usually inaccurate or hard to read or ungrammatical. So I started this little nonprofit to help museums like that uh, provide better outreach to English speaking audiences. So it's really serving uh, people on lots of levels. And then uh, just to sort of uh, get to the point uh, and, and uh, allude to part of why um, you know, I'm talking to you today, um, when the Ukraine war started, we sort of retooled some of what we were doing with Gnosis Project. So translation and language remained the core of what we were doing, 
uh, but we started doing it uh, on behalf of the people of Ukraine uh, and uh, for purposes of preserving their culture, uh, which uh, has been threatened, especially since February of last year. Now, did you go to Ukraine as part of this effort? I did. Yeah, uh, I think that's really the only credible. I thought at the time it was really the only credible way to, to really get a sense for what was going on there. And I realize that all the more now to the extent that I thought it was true last summer. Uh, I really know it's true now uh, just to get a complete sense of what was going on over there and identify uh, uh, needs. Um, you know, you watch the news and you see there are big needs. There are big needs uh, that people there have that individuals really don't know how to have an impact on, can't have an impact on. It's very overwhelming. So being over there allowed me to identify things that I could do, that my organization could do, that my game company. Uh, I also, as you mentioned, I'm a game publisher. I have a game company called uh, Skirmisher Publishing uh, that publishes role-playing games and miniatures games, that sort of thing. Um, I identified things Skirmisher could do to help. I identified things Gnosis Project could do to help. And I never would have been able to identify those things if I hadn't actually been there on the ground. I wouldn't have known where I could actually have an impact uh, and, uh, and do the most good. Had you ever been to Ukraine before? Had anyone? Uh, <laughs> apparently somebody had well yeah certainly uh but no i never i never had um and what's kind of funny is that the earliest piece of music i can ever remember hearing as a child so by the time i was six or seven uh was musorgsky's pictures at an exhibition uh and it's a 10 movement orchestral piece and the 10th movement is which is the one that just jumps out to, you know, anybody who knows this uh, piece is um, uh, dedicated to the Golden Gate of Kiev. Uh, so one of my favorite pieces of music and one of the things always in the back of my mind I wanted to visit one day was the Golden Gate of Kiev. And it never even really made it onto a bucket list. Ukraine was never really one of the places I was realistically, um, you know, going to end up. Uh, and it really is the crisis that, um, you know, that, that prompted me to do that. So when did you go and how'd you fly in or how'd you get in there? And uh, just give me some details. Tell me about the experience. Well, you know, uh, so first thing, I, I just wanted to fly in there. Uh, so uh, my business partner, uh, Brenda and I got online and we start uh, just trying to get me a direct flight to Kiev. And um, this message keeps popping up. You can't fly in directly to Kiev because it's part of a uh, no-fly zone. Okay, so so that that wasn't something we were able to do. Uh, and I didn't even know when we bought my ticket exactly how I was, what I was going to be doing when I was there. It, it was all very open-ended at that point, and there really are not a lot of good resources for realistically telling volunteers or small NGOs, you know how to maneuver your way around the country. Um, so uh, we bought me a ticket uh, into Warsaw, figuring that I would figure out how to get there. Uh, I had 30 days to figure out what my mission was going to be, 30 days before my flight took off after, after we bought it. And I ended up um, through a friend of a friend uh, who had volunteered in Ukraine with an independent combat medic group, meeting some people over there. So about two weeks before I took off, I had some contacts with an independent combat medic group uh, that at this point uh, is sort of been formalized as the A-team. 
and I went over there and I served with them for 30 days. And we sort of pooled our resources so that I was helping support what they were doing, delivering medical supplies, uh, delivering humanitarian supplies uh, to shelters and to kids and that sort of thing. Um, combined our resources to do that, which was part of their ongoing mission, uh, to fund more of that through my little NGO and to um, visit a lot of cultural sites, uh, which is is part of what I do for purposes of translating their placards and uh, being a, a witness to history in case they're destroyed. So do you speak any Ukrainian or Russian? Uh, you know, just a couple phrases. You know, I could say, Dobry uh, vecher, good evening. Uh, you know, Nostrovia. Uh, you know, I, you pick up a couple phrases when you're there. Mm -hmm. But as one of our translators said, uh, our translator Anna said, really, really sadly, of some of uh, of my teammates, they have been here six months, and they know just five words. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, just because someone's heart is in the right place and they want to. Um, uh, uh, help out doesn't mean they're always uh, good with languages and Americans are particularly bad bad with uh, that to start. Now that said, I have a good friend who's an American volunteer working uh, near the city of Kharkiv, my friend Jose, and he actually is a uh, communications teacher. He's teaching students uh, English and he has been mastering Ukrainian and Russian uh, and Czech and Polish. Uh, so, you know, there are exceptions to the rule and paragons that stand out in this regard. So you flew into Poland. How did you get from Poland into Ukraine? Well, then I was uh, part of a team uh, who had a staging area in Poland. And the two guys who were on the team um, uh, in country at the time, uh, and everybody goes by um, uh, call signs, uh, you know, uh, nom de guerre. Uh, so Grunt and Irish uh, <laughs> grabbed their mission vehicle and drove uh, up to Warsaw from where they were on the Polish-Ukrainian border and picked me up. Uh, so that was the advantage of, of being part of a team. Uh, you know, I didn't know what the hell was going to happen, uh, getting off the plane. You know, I didn't know if gypsies were going to end up with my kidneys or, you know, <laughs> uh, have to, you know, have to fight to protect my gear. I just, you know, I just didn't know what to expect. So actually having a, a couple of guys who just drove up there to pick me up. Uh, and then we went to our staging area and we, you know, uh, had an initial mission, uh, mostly an administrative thing that we had to do in Ukraine. And then within a couple of days, we just crossed the border in our mission vehicle. You know, you get shaken down because you're all these guys are all dressed like they're auditioning for the dogs of war. Uh, you know, and when you uh, go through the border, they check your vehicle to see what you have. And, you know, there's all this armor stacked there and medic bags and crap like that. So you've got to go through a song and dance. Um, uh, but then we went through and uh, we did about a one week mission. Um, nothing hazardous. It was mostly just um, uh, uh, doing things in our staging areas in Ukraine. Uh, then we came back. And then after that, we did uh, went, uh, back into Ukraine for a second time. We're there for about three weeks uh, and did uh, a number of things that were uh, somewhat more hazardous, uh, running out uh, to a city on the Russian border to drop off a load of coats at a children's shelter. Um, buying certain kinds of equipment uh, in Kyiv and running them up to troops in Zaporizhia, uh, which is right on the line with the Russians. Um, so a lot of deliveries, uh, a lot of uh, what they would have called in the U.S. Army combat service support. So just supplementing 
uh, the sorts of uh, work that was being done. And then, and then anytime I could do something else, anytime I had any downtime, I was going to the local museums. I was going to the local historic sites and taking pictures of the placards and trying to interview, you know, the docents and people running them and just trying to get as much of an understanding as I could uh, for Ukrainian history uh, and culture. So what sort of artifacts or artworks or displays uh, would one find in the sorts of museums that you were in? Well, really anything. Uh, I think probably most Americans have trouble getting their mind around, you know, what Ukraine looks like. Uh, you know, it has huge cities. Uh, it is it is primarily an agricultural country. I live in Minnesota right now, and and so much of Ukraine looks just like Minnesota. Uh, the only difference is, uh, in a sense, it's the same topography. It's a lot of the same climate. It's a lot of the same crops. Really, the the only tell you would have it's the same windmills. The only tell you have is that Americans live in farms, you know, out in the country and Ukrainians live in villages. And that's the first thing you would pick up. The Americans don't live in villages and you'd see these villages, you'd say, oh, I'm not in Minnesota anymore. That would that would be the first thing uh, that would tip you off. Uh, but as far as cultural stuff goes, um, well, what kind of museums did I visit? I visited the uh, City Museum of Dnipro. Uh, so that looks at the history of the city of Dnipro uh, going back uh, to medieval times. Uh, so it's just the whole, you know, what you would find in any city museum, uh, just, you know, the, the history of the city, you know, with things like, uh, a display on all the sorts of different kinds of bricks that were made there, you know, just, just what you expect to find, uh, in, 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 in any, uh, in any city, uh, museum. Um, but then some real, uh, weird, uh, old school stuff that you don't see in America anymore. Like I went to a museum of zoology, uh, in Dnipro, uh, and, um, it was just old, creepy, you know, stuffed animals of the sort that you just mostly don't see uh, in, in, in museums uh, in, in, in the U.S. anymore. Um, and then, uh, you know, some churches and monasteries and, um, uh, and, and other places like that. We went to a mass at the uh, Monastery of St. Michael in Kiev, went and visited some monuments in uh, Zaporizhia, spent a couple days in Odessa uh down on the black sea uh, uh visiting sites there so really just tried to make a as much of a complete circuit of the country as we could providing humanitarian relief to the greatest extent we were able uh and i was fundraising the whole time i was online raising money uh and uh then figuring out how to use that money to buy things like winter coats was a big thing that we were buying um we took a carload of food out to uh to a shelter you know, getting stuff from the western part of the country, western part of Ukraine and Poland into the eastern part uh, that was most threatened. That was a lot of what we were doing. So mostly uh, it looks like the I'm looking at a map right now of the country. And uh, for some reason, I guess, for authenticity's sake, uh, Google wants to show me all the local place names in Cyrillic, which is not helpful to me. It's not helpful. No, <laughs> uh, but the Dnieper River runs. Um, Right through the middle. Yeah, right through the middle. I mean, the western side of the river is bigger than the eastern side, um, but not by a whole lot. So you were spent most of your time uh, on the western side of the river? No, uh, it, was, it was it was pretty uh, – well, look at your map there. Uh, crossed the frontier from Poland uh, and spent a little bit of time in Lviv. I've got uh, Ukrainian friends now and a translator in Lviv. Uh, and we went on, and one of our – forward staging areas was in the city of Turnipil. Uh, so you're going to find that 
a little bit to the east of um, Lviv. Uh, then uh, we would travel on a route that took us through towns that included uh, Zhidomir and oh, some others that I'm forgetting now, Berdizov, I think, uh, and, and went to Kiev. So we ended up going to Kiev. Um, I think I've been through Kiev maybe. Uh, I've spent three nights there. Uh, as a result, uh, as part of coming and going uh, for various things. So we spent some time in uh, in Kiev. Um, then uh, we crossed uh, the Dnieper, uh, and that put us in the eastern part of the country. And uh, we went to a number of locations there. Uh, we went down to Dnipro, which is uh, further down the river. Oh, way down there. Okay. Yeah. So we were in Dnipro. We spent four nights in Dnipro. Uh, we went out to Zaporizhia, which is uh, one of the contested oblasts. Mm -hmm. Oblast is like a state. Uh, what they, you know, what they would call a state. It's probably more the size of a, yeah, it's a state. Um, uh, but uh, that's one of the areas that's contested and held half by the Russians and half by the Ukrainians. So we went out to um, uh, Zaporizhia. It's where the biggest nuclear power plant in Europe is. Uh, so it's especially, that's one that ends up on the news. Yeah, you can see it right there it's right above your cursor yeah uh and we ended up we went to there we went to zaporizhia twice and i could say i've got my favorite cafe in zaporizhia <laughs> that's important <laughs> on the Porsche for the first time um and we went out to kharkiv and you're going to need to zoom out and go way up to the far northeast uh to be able to find Kharkiv there it is yeah that's about 30 miles from the Russian border so we uh, did some humanitarian runs of supplies went to a shot up uh residential neighborhood and met a guy who runs a shelter and uh dropped off a bunch of food and and coats for for kids there and then the last big place we went was Odessa and that's like way down at the opposite end of uh, the country now uh to the uh west of the Crimea Wow, you did get all over, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, and any given, this wasn't all necessarily one route. Like, we spent four days in Dnipro and, you know, went out to Zaporizhia while we were there. So we didn't actually spend the night in Zaporizhia. Uh, we just conducted business and ate lunch. Uh, and we had a staging area in Turnipil, so we stayed there any number of times. Uh, and then uh, a number of Ukrainians... Uh, who supported our efforts as volunteers um, put us up while we were in uh, in Kiev. Uh, so uh, we had some friends uh, that very generously uh, uh, gave us food and shelter while we were uh, while we were in Kiev. Yeah, sounds like it. So what was happening militarily while you were there? A lot of air raids. <laughs> A lot of air raids. Uh, Halloween uh eve we were in kharkiv dropping off uh coats and my buddy uh grunt got just this weird feeling i wanted to hang out in kharkiv i said look we're here we drove all the hell the way out here let's let's spend a night let's relax the people here at the shelter want us to help us distribute the coats there's good optics for that let's let's do that and he was really <laughs> squirrely uh he did not want to hang out uh and you know what I don't want to argue with him. Uh, if he felt that strongly about it, uh, I wanted to respect that. So we got in the car and we drove straight back Halloween night. And I think it must have been about 
a 15 hour, 15 or 18 hour drive straight through to Turnipill all the way uh, in the um, uh, 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 western half of the country. And uh, yeah, uh, and as we would make it through communities, we would hear the air raid sirens going off. And that was what was up to that point. I think Halloween night was, uh, I think, if not the biggest, one of the biggest night of air raids up to that point. And the, the bombs were just hitting behind us uh, as we went across the country. Uh, we just worked our and we just we just kept moving and got in finally about 3 a.m. Uh, to, to our to our hooch and turnipill. But uh, uh, that was a big part of what was going on. Just constant air raids. We're in Zaporizhia. There were air raids. Uh, we were in Odessa. There were air raids. We'd gotten a, a pretty good orientation of the city from our, our fixer uh, down in Odessa. So I bought the most expensive bottle of champagne on the menu at the cafe we went to. And God damn it, when the air raid siren went off, no one got up. We sat there <laughs> drinking our champagne because we were not going uh, to let them take that from us. Right. So, and when I say the most expensive on, on the menu, I mean the one that was $20 a bottle. What was the, uh, the moment when you felt the most in danger while you were there? Well, I don't know. That's that's a good question, and, and I I don't want uh, to be projecting any any uh, false bravado here. You're not a news reporter. <laughs> no, uh, but I uh, but but I am a combat veteran, and I did serve in the first Gulf War. Uh, so you know, this wasn't my first war zone. So when did I feel in the most danger? Small incidents of the sort that you wouldn't expect, where I would have felt danger. Uh, we tried to get into a hotel. We we're looking for a hotel our first night in Dnipro, and the lobby was full of drunk policemen mm. uh, who were acting in a really menacing way. Uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that can go any direction. Uh, so that was actually one of the most uh, uh, threatening, uh, you know, positions uh, I ended up uh, being in, uh, potentially. Uh, we were in a car accident, uh, and the vehicle that hit us rolled. Uh, so I wasn't in the vehicle that rolled, but that was still pretty, pretty, uh, scary. That was still a pretty, uh, tense situation. Um, but I wouldn't say I was, was scared, uh, most of the time. Uh, I think it's just a matter of having your head around a situation like this. Uh, there are people that were scared there and I, and I'm not immune to fear. I think it's just, uh, the kind of thing, uh, you need to be able to manage if you're in a situation like this and you want to be effective. And most of the people I work with do a really good job of that. You know, when I first heard from you that you were going to Ukraine, I think I misunderstood your intent. Okay. Um, there, you know, there were Westerners who went very early on uh, to fight. Right. And the, the Ukrainians, I mean, if you showed up and you weren't a combat veteran and you didn't speak Ukrainian and you didn't speak Russian, they didn't have a lot of use for you. So right. they just send people to the front lines. <laughs> like, right. Go take a bullet. Well, well, <laughs> you know? 30 days out, uh, when I bought uh, my ticket, uh, at that point, I'd also bought my body armor. Mm -hmm. So 30 days out, I didn't know where I was going to be going and what I was going to be doing. Uh, in February, in, in February, um, uh, when the war started, uh, I started training uh, with the weight equivalent to uh, an anti-tank rocket. I was trained uh, in the Army as an anti-tank gunner. Uh, and 
you might remember, because uh, you and I were working together last year, uh, you and I were at EarthX, uh, the Earth Day um, uh, convention, exactly a year ago. You remember there was a lot of stress in my life at that point, mm -hmm. and there were a lot of things going on that kept me from going to Ukraine at that point. So my intent uh, would have been to go in March uh, immediately after it started, and I probably would have ended up just being sent to the line. So things had stabilized a bit and the Ukrainians had really destroyed anything that looked like a Russian tank uh, by, by the time I got over there. Um, but that said, uh, when I uh, went over there, 30 days uh, out from when I flew out, uh, I just didn't know uh, exactly what my role over there was going to be. I didn't personally know anyone over there. I didn't have connections with the team I ended up with. Uh, and I ended up with this independent, you know, I say combat medic team because a lot of them were medics. Uh, and a lot of what we were doing was medical oriented. We were, uh, you know, probably more appropriately roadrunners. Uh, you know, a lot of what we were doing was was expediting and delivering and just sort of, you know, keeping things flowing. You know, I think we're roughly the same age and uh, it would just never occur to me to go to a combat zone. I've I'm not a combat veteran, never, never been right. in the military. I mean, I was in delayed entry for the Marine Corps for a year, but I never actually got to boot camp. Um, yeah, it just, it, it wouldn't occur to me to do that. Although I did go and do something rather physical, you know, vocationally this, uh, this past winter, but nobody was shooting at me. <laughs> right. There were no bombs falling. It felt like the thing to do. Yeah. Uh, and now that you're back, how long have you been back? Well, let's see. I got back, uh, in November. Well, <laughs> see, this has been a continuing thing for me because now I've identified, uh, things that my organizations can do. When I say my organizations, I mean the Gnosis Project, which is my nonprofit, and Skirmisher Publishing, which is my business. And I have to keep those two things uh, separate. Uh, but for example, uh, when I got over there, uh, I had on my armor, um, as I always uh, have had uh, when I was in the military, a patch that has my blood type on. So I made positive. Uh, I had a patch that said A plus uh, that, that I wore. So you know, if you get if you get injured, uh, whoever's treating you, hopefully, hopefully they have blood and they know how to to do a transfusion, but they know what kind of blood to give you. So this is something that's universal, right? Um, uh, among soldiers. But what I discovered when I got there is that Eastern medics, Ukrainian medics, don't understand American or Western blood types. And, and they very well might not read English. So if they see A plus, it means nothing to them. It's just a decoration. Uh, they don't know that they're supposed to give you A plus blood. So one of the things that my nonprofit has done, uh, this isn't A plus, this just happens to be what I have sitting here. This is O plus. Uh, we created dual language uh, blood type patches. So uh, we created patches that have uh, both systems. So uh, O plus would be what an American would have as their blood type. Uh, one RH plus is what, uh, an Eastern European would wear, hmm. uh, would have. And I have, uh, right there written on it, uh, blood type, uh, in English and Ukrainian Cyrillic. Uh, so I raised the money to produce about 1100 of these with the idea, cause that's the most I could afford, uh, initially, uh, 1100 in all different, uh, in eight different blood types. Um, and I just hand carried uh, three quarters of those to Prague uh, and spent a week in Prague uh, with my buddy, Jose. Uh, and we're working on a number of projects together on behalf of 
the people of Ukraine. And note, I say the people of Ukraine. We don't work for the government of Ukraine. We don't work for the military of Ukraine. Uh, we are doing things on behalf of the people of Ukraine uh, who are caught in the middle of all this. But I carried over about seven or 800 of these in, in, in eight different blood types, which he's now going to be uh, distributing uh, to foreign volunteers throughout the country, you know, uh, you know, through his network. So he'll go to, you know, uh, our friend Eddie, who's a medic, and give him 30 of them. And then Eddie will distribute them to his network. Uh, and my friend Scott, uh, who's going to be working on a documentary, uh, is going to be traveling around the country and meeting with a lot of Legion, uh, you know, Ukrainian Foreign Legion troops uh, and other volunteers. He's going to be handing these out. I got back from Ukraine uh, in uh, November. I got back from Prague last Monday and spent a week there uh, working on a number of projects tying in with our uh, our efforts in Ukraine. Last summer, I talked to uh, a guy. I think he was in Prague. Uh, he's the author of this book. Mm -hmm. And that's his name. Yeah, Philip Dusik. <laughs> and I, just in introducing him, you know, mentioned that he was in Czechoslovakia. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> No, he's not. <laughs> Hasn't been for a long time. Uh, and he didn't correct me. <laughs> yeah. Just hopeless, hopeless American, not updating his maps, you know, not even once a decade. We said Czechoslovakia our entire, our entire uh, uh, lives. But I have, you know, my relatives, the European Varholas are Slovaks, uh, and they're not Czechs. Uh, so, you know, that, that reinforces, uh, this, this difference to me. So I have relatives who are, one of whom I got to spend an evening with, uh, when I was, uh, was in Prague. Uh, I met a cousin of mine who I'd never met before. And, uh, we had a couple of drinks together at, uh, at a bar in Prague, which was kind of cool. Nice. But she is a Slovak who just happens to live in the Czech Republic at the moment. <laughs> so, uh, it is the Czech Republic. Somebody told me it's called Czechia these days. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know if that's caught on. Uh, I think Czech Republic is safe in any event. Yeah. But Czechoslovakia, no, 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 no. <laughs> System update required. <laughs> yeah, though. No, that's, that's, that's an archaic uh, name uh, to be sure. So it goes back to the area of the Soviet union. Uh, also a, uh, a defunct entity. Yeah, and I I sometimes catch myself making reference to the Soviets and then have to correct myself and say the Russians. Well, and you know what? It's funny. Um, uh, one of the, the phenomena I've become aware of since I've become, you know, uh, an adult who can look back on the past is the phenomena of um, uh, smart, stupid people. Uh, so when, <laughs> when we were growing up, there was always the smart person who told you, uh, when you referred to the Russians, oh, no, no, you mean the Soviets. Well, actually, it was the fucking Russians. It was the Russians all along. Uh, so the mm -hmm. smart, stupid people were always telling you, oh, no, no, it's it's really the Soviets. Yeah, technically, but that was just a political construct. It was the Russians uh, that were behind them in making all that happen. It was not inaccurate to say, uh, to say the Russians then. Uh, and it's, of course, the only accurate thing to say now. Well, uh, you've never met her, but uh, a woman that I lived with for, for five years or more, um, her name is Olga, and she came from the Soviet Union to the U.S. as a child. Uh -huh. uh, but, you know, and, you know, her family is from Moscow, and they consider themselves Russian, but she herself was born in Ukraine. Oh, okay. Uh, because the, the Soviet, you know, the Communist Party, they just sent people everywhere. Yeah. They, they 
sent Russians to all the different, uh, right. you know, satellite countries. And so you've got pockets of Russians all over, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and it's, it's pretty messy. I mean, it would be, it's, it's a difficult thing to create these partitioned countries uh, to have their own identities because there are, or at least were so many Russians living in them. Well, keep um, in mind, this was the pretense uh, that Germany used uh, uh, at the beginning of World War II to um, conquer, uh, invade, seize uh, areas all over Europe. They said, well, we have pockets of Germans living here. These are our, our, our traditionally German areas. And now the Germans are being picked on by the Czechoslovakians or whatever. Uh, and, and we have a right to seize these areas. Uh, so the Baltic states, uh, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, uh, they were all founded by German Teutonic Knights in the 13th century. So that was the basis. It's really interesting when you research this out. There's a straight line between the Eastern invasions of Teutonic Knights in the 13th century. There's a straight line between that and the uh, Nazi invasions of Eastern Europe uh, in the 20th century. Uh, it, it was basically the same thing. And the one in the 20th century used the first one as a pretense uh, and a justification uh, 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 for doing so. So yeah, same yeah. playbook uh, as what you were describing with the Russians. The Germans, uh, uh, the Nazis, I should say, did, did the same thing uh, a century earlier. Uh, can you give a, a brief history of uh, the Kaliningrad Oblast? Can I give a brief history of the Kaliningrad Oblast? Uh, I, I could give one, but it might be error prone. And since you're you're better versed in European history, I don't. I don't think I can give a brief history of it, except to say that uh, Dnipro, uh, I believe, did it used to be Kaliningrad? No, it used to be Katarinengrad. No. Uh, what, what is it you want to say about the uh, Kaliningrad Oblast that I'm not getting? Well, uh, it's not in uh, Ukraine. It's it is a it is a piece. It was a piece of the Soviet Union. Okay. It is between Lithuania and Poland. Oh, Kaliningrad. Yeah, of course. Yes. Yeah. And uh -huh. it's now part of Russia, but it is not contiguous with any other part of Russia. I mean, it, it borders the Baltic Sea, Lithuania, and Poland. I know. I did not even know that. And it was, um, it was populated entirely by Germans. And I think it was in World War II, but uh, this, this is where my you know, toward the end of the German occupations where I get fuzzy. But basically, the um, the Germans handed it to the Soviets or to the Russians, I forget which, and the the population basically moved to Germany. And the Soviets moved in a bunch of Russians. So there's, I think, like 2 million Russians living in this, you know, oblast, as you call it, it would be a state or a province or, you know, a prefecture or something like that. Uh, but yeah, it's it's just this Russian um, state that's not in Russia, and I, I it have, is. I have no idea. I did not know that was a thing. Yeah, and it is absolutely surrounded by NATO countries. I mean, it borders NATO countries on three sides and the Baltic Sea on a fourth side. We get weird exclaves like that. Like, uh, there's a city called Malia, uh, which is in uh, North Africa. Uh, it's either, I think it's in Morocco. It's not in Morocco. It's attached to Morocco. And it's actually uh, an exclave of, of Spain. It's actually part of Spain that they've just held on to. Uh, and it's not in contact with Spain at all. So the same, 
same same there's more weird little things like this around the world uh than most people would think because i didn't know about the kaliningrad uh exclave at all that was not something i was familiar with so there are rail lines that connect it to russia but they have to go through lithuania uh-huh which is a nato you know it's a nato partner it, it is a nato right. state and so you know the the Russians and the Europeans had to work out a deal <laughs> by which to say, yeah, trains can still, you know, pass through this NATO country from Russia to get to the uh, Kaliningrad Oblast. There was, there was a, a, a I, I suppose, you, I suspect you've heard of the uh, Free City of Danzig. I couldn't say a whole lot about it. I've certainly heard the phrase Free City of Danzig. Well, there's a Polish city today called Gdansk, uh, Gdansk, Poland. It's a coastal city. It's up on uh, on the Baltic. Uh, but prior to World War II, it was um, emotionally, uh, well, it was divided between ethnic Germans and ethnic Poles, but it was an independent uh, city, that I think was a protectorate of the League of Nations or, or some such. Uh, but it was a, um, a flashpoint during World War II because it was one of the very, very first places, it might be the first place that shots were fired in World War II, but it was one of the very, very first places that uh, Nazi sympathizers in conjunction with Nazis seized on behalf of, of, of the Reich uh, at the beginning of uh, World War II. So it was an area that uh, had a lot of ethnic Germans. It was completely detached from Germany, but it had those kinds of you know weird connections with it uh, that you were describing, like with uh, the Kaliningrad Oblast. Well, uh, you can see I've got it up on screen, right? Yeah. So this is Kaliningrad right here. Yeah, okay. It's a so stone it's throw right from Gdansk. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I mean, could... look at it: Lithuania, Poland, Black Sea. <laughs> so, so Gdanskers can, can actually really say, "I could see Russia on a clear day." Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not connected to the rest of Russia. It's kind of like uh, you know, looking across the Bering Sea and seeing Alaska and saying, "Yeah, exactly. I can see the U.S." <laughs> uh, pretty funny. All right. It's a complex part of the world, uh, suffice it to say, uh, KMO. Uh, there's just a lot of moving parts uh, over there. There really are. Absolutely. And I've had a crash course in it now. Uh, uh, but, you know, uh, I would not claim, uh, you know, uh, expertise per se. I mean, you know, compared to the average American, I'm, I'm a... You're a scholar. <laughs> But but now, uh, you know, I, I, I know an awful lot more about it. But there's what I don't know is a lot more than what I do know. Of course. <laughs> any honest person has to say that about just about any topic. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Be better to assume a little humility in these cases. Yeah. Well, that's so those are your personal experiences. Uh, let's pull out to sort of a geopolitical level. The United States seems to be almost straightforward and saying yeah we're fighting a proxy war with russia just to exhaust them and we're doing it basically risk-free with somebody else's bodies and uh, and yeah that's what we're going to keep doing and there's this absurd you know like farcical pretense that the united states was not responsible for the bombing of the uh the gas pipeline nord stream 2 yeah i mean who else had the capability this this thing was it's not under 20 feet of water it's it's like 200 feet down it, this is very very specialized diving just to get 
to that depth. Right. And then to, you know, set up a lot of complicated explosives around a structure, you know, with the intention of uh, disabling it. You know what? I'm not saying the U.S. wasn't, uh, but I'm saying it's not out of the question that the U.S. might not have been. Russia's pretty scary to a lot of people. And the United States has um, has an enmity with Russia, but it's a really very much a theoretical one in a lot of ways. Yeah. And one that a lot of Americans are unaware of or just don't give a damn about or or in which for reasons that you probably don't want to go into uh, on this show. uh they're actually sympathetic toward Russia, which is is perverse and absurd. Um, but there are a lot of people who, like the Baltic states, Latvia and Lithuania and Estonia, they are under existential threat from Russia. They're, they are under the threat of extermination, uh, of ceasing to exist, of having their most prominent citizens executed or put in camps, of no longer being a country or a people. A lot of people are motivated uh, to fuck with Russia and and uh, and be stumbling blocks for it. So when we say, oh, yeah, it, it obviously it was the U.S., not necessarily. There are a lot of people who are motivated to make uh, life difficult uh, uh, for the Russians uh, and to uh, um, be a thorn in their sides. Yeah, I don't think it's a, a question so much of uh, motivation as it is capability. I mean, if, if somebody if China builds a, a moon base and somebody sabotages it, it probably wasn't the Tibetans. Yeah. No. <laughs> sure, fine. But I'm just playing devil's advocate here <laughs> and, and saying that, you know, uh, if we don't know, if we don't truly know what the answer is, uh, then then there might be more than one legitimate answer. That's all I'm saying. Fair enough. So what's uh, what's your take just on the, the geopolitical level? Well, my take uh, is um, a combination of both personal and dispassionate. Uh, I was a NATO soldier. Uh, I uh, was trained as as a mechanized infantryman uh, to hold the line against the Russians. Uh, they were the old enemy. They were a real enemy. Uh, Not the were... Russians, Michael. The Soviets. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you and and technically you're correct. Um, but strangely like, enough, uh, they all spoke Russian. <laughs> strangely enough. But but they were they were um, a real threat to us, uh, and I had what we called what was referred to um, as a die in place mission. I think the actual acronym was uh, the D stood for disposition in place, but it basically just meant we drove up to the border, we dismounted all of our weapons from our vehicles and dug in, and we just held our ground and slowed the Russians down as much as possible while forces in the U.S. were being mobilized to come over and stop them. So this this was not a, a, a theoretical thing uh, when I was in the military in in the mid and late 80s. This was a, a, a real thing. And then all of a sudden, you know, I, I got out of the army. I stayed in the reserves. I went to Paris and was a, a student there on my GI Bill for a couple of years. All of a sudden, it all just collapsed. Uh, it all just fell apart. Uh, we didn't make it fall apart. They fell apart because they were rotted from within. But But they were a real threat. And we trained in earnest uh, to hold the line against them. Uh, and the line we would have been holding uh, would have been the line of, of civilization. It would have uh, been the line that kept uh, Germany and France and England uh, and ultimately the United States uh, from coming into direct conflict with, with the Soviet Union. Uh, so I know that they're a threat and I haven't forgotten that. And I'm so ashamed and baffled by uh, friends of mine in some cases acquaintances, former friends, you know, depending, uh, who were NATO soldiers and uh, who devoted parts of their lives uh, 
to holding the line against this enemy who now um, have wavered on that for whatever reasons. And unfortunately, like I said, I know you don't want to get into this, uh, nor, nor do I, but I think the reasons for being sympathetic toward Russia or being willing to give Rus Russia a pass or pretending that somehow Ukraine was always just as bad as Russia or just as much of a threat to us as Russia, I think they have tainted motives and I think they're wrong. Uh, Russia is a threat to America. I mean, we know unequivocally that, that Russia played a role uh, in tainting social media uh, and influencing the way Americans have voted in elections for the last 10 years. That's that's a pretty serious enemy. That's a, a that's an, an, an implacable enemy that that has, to this day, over the last 10 years, damaged our country immeasurably. They are the enemy. Uh, so um, that is my, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, zoomed out view on this, that they are an enemy of the United States, that, yeah, there is a proxy war going on in the Ukraine right now. And every American who really actually uh, understands uh, the threat uh, that can be faced for, to us from external factors uh, should get behind the effort uh, to win this proxy war. Um, that is that is my uh, uh, my cynical, um, uh, dispassionate, uh, uh, realpolitik view of it. My personal one is that Ukraine is full of normal people uh, who are so normal, in fact, that they want to gravitate toward the Western world rather than toward Russia and the Eastern world. They're not the same. I've met Russians. I've interacted with Russians. They're not uniformly horrible. I'm not going to be xenophobic and say that. But most of the Russians I've dealt with don't feel uh, anything like, like people from our society do, uh, whereas Ukrainians do. Uh, Russians, Ukrainians, are, are they don't feel like the same thing. Uh, and Ukrainians want to have um, what we would call normal uh, westernized lives. Uh, and uh, on a personal level, I've met a lot of them. I've seen how their lives have been disrupted. Uh, and I, when I think of the Ukrainians, I look over at my neighbor's house. I look at my house. I look at people I know and I care about. And I say, what would happen if my fucking house blew up tonight? I mean, if my house blew up uh, and, and tanks came rolling into my neighborhood, this is really what happened to real human beings. And, and, and it's, it, people can laugh at it and they can make fun of it. And they can talk about how, well, corruption, bullshit, this and that. But human beings had their homes blown up uh, and they had to walk away with nothing. They had to leave their pets. They had to leave the bodies of their loved ones. They Imagine your home uh, being blown apart and you walking away alone and leaving behind your dead pets and your dead relatives. Uh, uh, and, and, and people in another country saying, well, the government of Arkansas was pretty corrupt. <laughs> and, and, you know, you're not going to want to hear that bullshit, right? Right. Um, so, uh, it is bullshit. It's, it's, it's uncompassionate and, and it's, it's illogical. Uh, it's, 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 it's a logical fallacy. It's the argument of people who cannot, um, who have opted not to reason. Um, so, uh, I hope that answers your question. They'll hold me to account if it seems I got off track, but, but I, I have both a, um, a very, um, dispassionate um, a view that this is something that is interest, in the interests of the United States and it, that it always has been. And this is just an extension of my me going to Ukraine uh, and doing the things I did there. It's 
it's just an extension of my military service. And I'm going back in August. I'm going back 30 days a year until it's done uh, and doing the things that I need to do there. So, you know, when I was a reservist, I went on my uh, uh, active duty 30 days a year. Well, um, now I'm a reservist for uh, uh, democracy and America, and I'm going to uh, be serving directly 30 days a year uh, until it's done. And I'm going to be serving indirectly and doing things like, you know, uh, my blood type patches and stuff uh, during the other 11 months of the year. All right. Sounds good. All right. That was Michael Ovarhola. And if you'd like to know more about the work that he's doing in Ukraine, you can find a link to his project, the Gnosis Project, in the show notes for this episode, and also a link to the Skirmisher LLC gaming company. Now, usually what I do is I'll play the first 45 minutes of a longer conversation on the free podcast and then hold the second half or sometimes less than half, but, you know, a substantial portion of the conversation for the Sea Realm Vault. And uh, what you heard here was the entire conversation, except for some chit chat and gossip and stuff, you know, that wasn't really podcast worthy. It was just uh, us shooting the shit. And it was not recorded. So the next episode of the Sea Realm Vault podcast is uh, it's kind of a jump ball. You know, it's who knows? Who knows what it'll be? Potluck, maybe, or maybe me just <laughs> talking about stuff I've read recently about artificial intelligence, a topic which is very close to my heart, particularly, you know, if you watch my YouTube videos, you know, it's it's something I'm reading about, thinking about and talking about most days. But I didn't want this podcast, the KMO show, to be exclusively about artificial intelligence. So I've deliberately taken a break from that topic in the podcast in recent weeks. I think maybe one more week away from that topic, and then I'm just going to go right back into it. Long-time listeners to the Sea Realm podcast know that I can talk about any number of things, you know, with some level of depth and sophistication. And if there's anything that you'd like for me to talk about, any topic that you know that I've got some background in that you'd like to hear me revisit, do let me know. The best place to uh, to contact me these days, I think, is just to post a comment to the YouTube version of these podcasts. Of course, if you're a supporter on Patreon, you can comment there. And if you're a longtime listener, you probably know my email address. You are, If you already know it, you are welcome to send me an email. Now, one thing that came to mind for me over and over again as I re-listened to this conversation with Michael is the fact that, yeah, I grew up in the 80s. I basically formed my conception of the world in the mid to late 70s and the early 1980s. And by the end of the 80s, I was an adult. And so I have things in my head like Czechoslovakia a country which no longer exists. And longtime listeners also know that I've got a whole bunch of Star Trek in my brain, and I just kept thinking of the Christopher Plummer character from Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, Klingon General Chang, who was not ready for peace. He wanted to maintain the old hostilities between the Federation and the Klingon Empire. Even though such hostilities were just more than the Empire could afford to continue. And Star Trek VI is pretty obviously an allegory for the Cold War, with the Federation being the United States and the West generally, and the Klingons being the Soviets. And the character from the film, Klingon Chancellor Gorkon, was very clearly meant to be a stand-in for Mikhail Gorbachev. But in case 
all of the Cold War symbolism on display wasn't obvious enough to really just seal the deal, Christopher Plummer, as Klingon General Chang, says to James T. Kirk, played by William Shatner, In space, all warriors are cold warriors. And yeah, I mean, I've lived about half of my life now, maybe a little more, more than half my life in the post-Cold War era. But my worldview was pretty much laid down in the Cold War. Now, I've since come to, you know, hold my own worldview, my own prejudices, uh, my own reality tunnel, as Robert Anton Wilson would call it, at arm's length. You know, I'm still holding it. It's still part of my biography. It's still part of my mentality. But I realize that, you know, it's a map. It's not the territory. Uh, it is a collection of facts and observations and opinions which were delivered to me at a time when I wasn't as skeptical as I am now, when I wasn't in a position to, well, you know, this is really before the, the internet. Now, yeah, if you want to be one of those smart, stupid people, uh, you can say, oh, well, you know, the internet, as in the form of DARPAnet, has existed since the 1970s. Yeah, whatever. The World Wide Web was born in the early 1990s, and I grew up in the 80s, and that was before the web. And it was before I had any contact with even the, the pre-web internet that I was involved with, you know, Usenet, internet relay chat, that sort of thing, bulletin boards like the well. Yeah, I... I was, I had glancing contact with all that stuff, but really, you know, like most people, the internet for me is the World Wide Web. And for my children, you know, they never knew a time when the web didn't exist. But I do. <laughs> I'm Gen X. I grew up in the analog era and transitioned to digital when I was still, you know, young enough to have some mental flexibility. I have a foot in both worlds, although I am increasingly baffled perplexed, and irritated by modern user interfaces. But that's a rant I will not engage with here. Let me just say that, you know, Michael's example about what if some army rolled through the place where I live now, destroyed the house where I'm living, a house that my grandfather built, killed my relatives, killed my pets, forced me to flee with just what I could carry. And I learned that some smart aleck on the other side of the world who only knows about my situation through the internet and, you know, filtered through their own tribe's ideological lens. And they say, oh, well, the government of Arkansas has always been corrupt. Therefore, you know, we, we don't need to do anything about this. This The Arkansans had this coming. If you live in the United States and you live in, you know, a blue city or a blue state, you might think, yeah, fuck those Arkansans. In fact, you probably never even say the word Arkansan or, you know, articulate it to yourself in your head. And, you know, I'm not saying that I've completely come around and I'm like, yeah, okay, we absolutely have to write, you know, the Ukrainians a blank check and uh, crank up our munitions creation capacity, you know, crank it up to 11 and churn out as many rockets and mortar shells and bullets as we can to give to the Ukrainians. But... Well, I, I won't continue in that vein because, you know, an end of the podcast rant like this, they usually come around to some point, some, you know, some proposition that I'm making a case for. 
And I'm just not making a case for anything here other than encouraging everybody to realize that we live in a complex world. Things which seem absolutely clear to us are probably clear because so many other facts about the world which would muddy our perception have been carefully pruned and filtered and just removed from the presentation that is given to us largely by algorithms. Lines of computer code that have access to a lot of information about you and me as individuals, our preferences, the demographic categories into which we fit. And it is these lines of code which are determining what it is we see. And so much of what we see is what the algorithms think we will agree with or we will engage with because it irritates us. And so while Michael and I didn't talk at all about artificial intelligence or the, uh, the stoking of cultural animosities by social media, uh, I've somehow managed to bring it around to that topic here at the very end because, well, that's my, I don't want to say it's an obsession, but it's the topic that I come back to regularly. But the ultimate point being that I have no ultimate point <laughs> other than just epistemological humility. It's a complex world. There's a lot of noise in the signal. Uh, don't be too confident about your conclusions. And who was it? Was it Thomas Jefferson? Somebody said, um, in matters of principle, stand firm and with everything else, you know, go with the flow, which I agree with. But then the ideologue will make everything a matter of absolute bedrock principle. In which case, you know, my response is just uh, to take a page from the, the young folks vocabulary, go outside and touch some grass. Something I do multiple times a day. Um, I guess I don't necessarily reach down and touch the grass with my hands, but I'm outside quite a bit of the day because I have a young puppy who, uh, whose bladder and bowel control is not what it will be when she's a grown dog. And I give her lots of opportunities to go outside and do her business, as we say. All right, well, I imagine you have business to get on with, so get to it. I wish you well, and I will talk to you again quite soon. Take care.